this is a struggle not just for our living wage, uh, not just for affordability and dignity, but it's also a struggle to transform this university and universities uh, in the United States. The potential for AI for union organizing is enormous, and it's only going to grow in the coming years. That's why it's so important for union organizers to start using AI now to gain a competitive advantage and build a stronger, more effective union. If education wasn't predominantly a feminized field, right, the, the vast majority of teachers are women, I don't think we would have seen a theory of change that was so disrespectful of professional expertise. At about 1.30 a.m., Governor Murphy, union officials, and the university announced a tentative framework, not a tentative agreement. Uh, though rank-and-file union members emphasize that the strike is suspended, not over, conditional on follow-through with the contract. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. In our first segment today from the Working People podcast, we'll hear from one of the graduate student workers who's been out on strike for over five weeks now at the University of Michigan. Then, the I Am Story podcast, episode two, I Am a Man. From the Million Dollar Organizer podcast, AI and Union Organizing. Then, Jennifer Berkshire and Jack Schneider on how the corporate theory of change has damaged public education on The Dig podcast. And in our final segment today, a Rutgers striker talks about wins and future hopes. That's from the Valley Labor Report. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Alejo Stark, and I'm a rank and file member of GEO, the Graduate and Police Organization, which has been on strike for five weeks now. All right. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. Brought to you in partnership with In These Times Magazine and the Real News Network, produced by Jules Taylor, and made possible by the support of listeners like you. So as you guys heard, we've got Alejo Stark back on the podcast uh, to give y'all a critical update on the ongoing strike by graduate student workers at the University of Michigan. Hey, Max. Thank you, comrade, for, for having me on again. I really appreciate it. And maybe the only invariant or the only constant is that the administration, which includes the regents, are completely out of touch. Just the gap between our pay and uh, living conditions in Ann Arbor has tripled since 2020, since our last strike. Um, that is mostly due to rent increases, uh, but also general cost increases, which are squeezing workers everywhere. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why we're on strike. They were trying to get us back to work by claiming that our strike had produced or will produce or has produced irreparable harm. And that's, that's a very high legal bar, right, for the university. Nonetheless, that's the route the university took. The university paraded associate deans of all sorts of schools, and they've all had no clue who was actually on strike and who was on strike. Just to give you an example of this, one of the professors from the School of Music, Theater, and Dance, as he was on the witness stand, told everybody, including the judge, 
that weeks before the strike started, he got IT to go into the different classes, basically the different systems through which people assign grades or GSI, so graduate student instructors assign grades, weeks before the strike started, got in and locked everybody out of their grade books. This is weeks before the strike, literally locked them out. So he testified in court that he made graduate student workers' jobs impossible weeks before the strike even started. This is a struggle, not just for our living wage, uh, not just for affordability and dignity, but it's also a struggle to transform this university and universities uh, in the United States. And so it is the administration against all of us. It is the administration against undergrads who are facing tuition hikes. It is the administration against faculty who are constantly facing all sorts of threats and pressures from the administration to perform all sorts of meaning, meaningless tasks. And it's the administration against graduate workers who are facing an affordability crisis and are fighting for dignity. And so we said, we're gonna take over the administration building. We're gonna turn it into uh, a space of encounter, a beautiful space, uh, where we can have dance parties. So we had a dance party inside the administration building. We brought in some huge speakers and and, and dance for several hours. Uh, we dropped a huge banner that read Geo Strike in the rotunda. And we had a barbecue going outside uh, by some uh, Latin American comrades who have been doing ma making barbecues at our, at our picket lines with music. We had lecturers, faculty, allies, undergraduates show up. We had a huge inflatable uh, fat cat uh, that's strangling a worker uh, that was borrowed from one of our labor allies. Uh, so it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was a celebratory week. And it was uh, symbolically also a way in which what we're trying to do really is change the administration, change the university and take the university back from the administrators. So it seems like every single pressure point the university has tried to put on us has blown up. The courts, the cops, the attestation forms, getting faculty on their side. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of time before they cave and give us what we need, which is affordability and dignity for all grad workers here in Arbor. Well, it is no easy task to, to sum up a month's worth of strike action in like 15 minutes or less. But I think you did a beautiful job. So thank you for that. <laughs> Solidarity Forever, the song that we sing every single time, which is actually an old IWW song. Um, it's not just a fight for, for the union. It's, it's a fight to bring forth and to give birth to a new world from the ashes of the old. And I think that's precisely what we're fighting for in the last instance. In 1968, 1,300 sanitation workers in Memphis went on strike to protest deadly, dangerous working conditions and demand dignity. The men were prepared to do and make whatever sacrifice to pursue this goal. The city really didn't give a damn about who they were, just as long as they performed the service for the citizens they didn't treat them as human beings. Coming in April, the I Am podcast tells the story of the sanitation workers who dared to declare, I am a man. Now, these were people who had spent the better part of their adult life working for a city, taking orders from a racist supervisor. 
The fact of the matter is there's still this huge gap between black wealth and white wealth. And that gap has to be closed. That's what Dad was talking about. And that's what got him killed. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen... History is known to repeat itself. And today, 55 years later, Memphis sanitation workers are fighting against some very similar forces. We all believe that workers deserve a seat at the table and they've got to be treated with dignity and respect. And uh, we continue to fight for it. And it goes back to those famous four words that the Memphis sanitation workers had. I am a man. They don't see us as men and women. Go to IamStory.com or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe. It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show. Tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust. Now here's your host, Bob Odie. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. Welcome to my podcast, where we explore the latest developments and trends in union organizing. Today's episode, number 71, is all about the revolutionary technology that's transforming the world of union organizing. Artificial Intelligence, or AI. AI is quickly becoming an essential tool for union organizers. Are you looking to gain an edge in the fight for workers' rights? I know I am. With the power of AI, union organizers can now analyze vast amounts of data and develop more targeted, effective strategies for organizing. AI can help organizers identify potential members, assess their needs and interests, and track their engagement with the union. It can also help predict which workers are most likely to become involved in organizing efforts. This allows organizers to focus our efforts where we'll be most effective. But the power of AI doesn't stop there. AI can also help organizers develop more persuasive messaging and communication strategies by analyzing data on workers' preferences and habits. It can even help develop custom content tailored to specific workers, which can greatly increase engagement and participation. Don't underestimate this. You've got to see it in action. It's unbelievable. The potential for AI for union organizing is enormous, and it's only going to grow in the coming years. That's why it's so important for union organizers to start using AI now to gain a competitive advantage and build a stronger, more effective union. So what are you waiting for? Take action today and start revolutionizing your union organizing efforts with the power of AI. Sign up for an AI training course. Watch videos on YouTube. Invest in AI-powered software. Or even hire an AI consultant to help guide your efforts. The future is now, and it's time for your union to seize the opportunities that AI presents. 
Remember, the fight for workers' rights is always evolving. We've got to stay ahead of the curve with the latest technologies and strategies. Want to hear more about this subject? Join my free, exclusive Union Organizer Facebook group today. I'm proud of the work you're doing to fight for workers' rights. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jackman Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's episode is my big picture interview on public ed with Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire. They are the co-authors of the book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Education and the Future of School, and the co-hosts of the Education Policy Podcast, Have You Heard? Jack Snyder and Jennifer Berkshire. Welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Teacher shortages are becoming a, a big problem across the country. Should any of this be remotely surprising? Yeah, no. <laughs> None of this should be surprising to us. So first, let's go back in time to the early 2000s, right? The demonization wasn't so much about educators being you know, nefarious actors. You know, go back to the early 2000s, and the rhetoric was about educators being primarily self-interested and using their unions in order to insulate themselves from any kind of accountability. There are 98,000 public schools. There are 50 million kids in them. That's what it's going to look like for the foreseeable future. They're going to need teachers. This is a nice, stable profession. And then add to that one more thing that educators get, which is the psychological benefit of feeling like you're doing good in the world, like you're making a difference for young people. And that is the piece that was more and more under attack as we moved from the early 2000s into the present. And so what all of that means is that overall educator compensation, not just taking in salary um, to, to this equation, but also taking in things like you know, perceived stability of the profession, perceived social utility, right? That the overall compensation package has declined. And finally, one more thing to add to that is that, you know, it, it started with the idea that, you know, maybe we would shut schools down for low test performance, right? That comes out of No Child Left Behind, which was extended by the Every Student Succeeds Act. And couple that with, you know, exposure to markets through charter schools, right? You see one more piece that educators are worried about is, is my school going to be shut down or are we going to be denied the freedom to teach because suddenly we need to be laser focused on test scores? You know, for some educators, it means, you know, levels of stress that were just simply never predicted when they got into the profession. So this is a corporate informed theory of change. We need to have tighter coupling within the system. Educators need to worry about being fired just like their corporate counterparts do. And schools need to worry about going out of business, just like their corporate counterparts do. And that if what we can do is make educators and school leaders feel those kinds of pressures, then just like any good business or any good employee, they'll begin to increase their productivity. And so 
if you then take that theory of change and apply it, of course, we're going to end up with policies like test-based accountability, right? Hey, you didn't get the results. We're closing you down. The educators didn't move the needle on student test scores. They're going to be fired. Of course, you get things like value-added measures of teacher effectiveness, not only because you want to expose teachers to market forces, but also if you're going to have top-down corporate-style governance, you're not going to be able to see what three and a half million teachers are doing inside their classrooms. It's got to exist in a spreadsheet. It's got to be a number, right? And, And so the effort to quantify teacher quality was very much rooted in both sides of this theory of change, that we need corporate-style pressure from you know, the, the exposure to markets, and we need corporate-style management, top-down management over teachers. And similarly, these corporate theories of change right, are really rooted in a classist and highly gendered understanding of education, right? If education wasn't predominantly a feminized field, right, the, the vast majority of teachers are women, I don't think we would have seen a theory of change that was so disrespectful of professional expertise. And similarly, if teaching weren't a kind of very lower middle class profession, I don't think we would have seen a theory of change that was, again, as disrespectful of what educators know, because it presumes that educator unions don't exist to try to advance professionalism, but, you know, operate as a kind of cartel there to prevent competition. None of this is true. We know from research that the primary motivator of educators is the desire to make a difference, the desire to change the lives of young people. And so we were talking a minute ago about teacher compensation. A large part of teacher compensation is in psychic rewards, the sense of making a difference for young people, the sense of doing a job that matters and has social utility. Educators have never earned what they deserve in the quote-unquote free market, but they do get a lot in addition to the dollars and cents they bring home in their paychecks. And that was really undermined by reform efforts of that quarter century that I'm talking about. So it's not just that the theory of change was wrong. It's that the theory of change actually made conditions in education worse because the theory was rooted in flawed assumptions about educators. And by the way, it absolutely paved the way for the kinds of efforts to dismantle public education that we see today. Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hello, Tennessee Valley. This is The Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller, and we are broadcasting live. I wanted to share some labor organizing news from around here. For the past week, this was sent six days ago, staff and faculty at Rutgers University were on strike, the largest public sector strike in state history. They have been without a contract since June and faced the university president lying that public sector strikes are illegal in New Jersey. Demands included substantial wage increases, health insurance for adjuncts, adjunct pay proportional to full-time non-tenured lecturers instead of this two-tier nonsense, increased graduate student pay, and much more. I had the privilege of spending my afternoon Saturday supporting the pickets at the Newark campus 
campus and the solidarity of tenure staff, students, and community for striking workers was truly inspiring. At about 1.30 a.m., Governor Murphy, union officials, and the university announced a tentative agreement it was actually a tentative framework, not a tentative agreement. But through, though rank-and-file union members emphasize that the strike is suspended, not over, conditional on follow-through with the contract. Like all workers, they play an important part of my in my community, and I hope they all get the contract they deserve. So that is said, Jack from New Jersey. And here to talk about that with us, we have Hank Calais, a part-time lecturer at Rutgers University. Hank, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, no problem. No problem. So walk us through what did you win? Where are you wanting to, where were y'all wanting to go a little bit further? And then how do you weigh these things? The fact that there are three unions doing the negotiations is complicated things. We had to build a coalition that one of the things that we did when we j just before we started this, we attempted to merge the three unions into one big faculty union, which I still think would have strengthened our hand even more than we than where we were, because it, it would have made it impossible to peel people off. Right. That's always the that's always where management wants to go. Let's get a deal with this group and they'll like it. So the other group won't get anything. And that's a real difficult thing to navigate because we have a responsibility directly to our individual members for each of these unions. And there's a legal issue with if we get a TA, let's say, one of the unions gets a TA, they have a responsibility to put it out to a vote of their membership. And if they don't, if they try to drag their heels, there, there are some potential legal ramifications for that because we're not allowed technically to go on strike for the other unions. So we went out and strike together, under, I think, understanding the potential potential pitfalls that we would face the full-time the full-time union runs some significant changes in scheduling there's going to be a a lot of it is being handled through like new committees that are being created but there is a there is something that's going to be put in place to deal with the scheduling issue they won raises for all of their members there there is still there are still some significant stuff that has to be hashed out about in particular about graduate student needs one, there's some language in the framework around the, the length of their funding and the recognition of a, a class of graduate student. It's called a grad fellow. What happens is that one semester, they might be a graduate worker. The next semester, they may be in primarily as a student doing research. When they move from graduate assistant to grad fellow, they drop out of the union. They lose their health insurance. And they work, they're, doing, they're working on research that's going to benefit the university. They then go back to doing, let's say, the next semester, the next year, doing graduate assistant work or, or TA work, and they get pulled back into the union. So it's their health care is on, it's off, it's on, it's off. And again, as you can imagine, it's, it's, it creates some amazing difficulties in their lives. So there's some language in there that's supposed to address that, but not all the grad students at this point are happy. They think a little bit more needs to be done at the very least. For us as part-time people, as adjuncts, we the framework has provided, will calls for us to get significant raises. In the first year, we're looking at 30 some odd percent. And depending on that, that's if you, for a faculty that stays at the same level. So it could be as much as 40 45% if you are somebody who gets the upfront raise and then gets a bump tied to a change in status. So I'm technically what's called a part-time lecturer too. Under the new contract, and one of the things that we're still trying to iron out is where I would like somebody like me would fall. I could move up to, let's say, a part-time lecturer or what we're hoping will be called an adjunct lecturer 
or I think it's just a lecture, lecture three or lecture four, and that would include bumps in money as well. So some of our members could see 40% increases that first year. At the beginning, we won't be where the non-tenure track faculty are. By the end, we'll be close to where they are. They'll be getting their raises. So we'll still be a little behind, but it'll be much closer. And, the, and that money is going to be a game changer for so many people who are teaching on this part-time level. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock, urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. 